Well, good morning, everyone in person. Good morning, everyone online. My name is John Clements. Uh, I know a bunch of you, some of you I probably don't know yet. I know we've been seeing some new faces uh, recently here, which has been great. So if you are a guest or a visitor, or if you're watching online for the first time, just want to say welcome. Thanks for coming. We love having you. Um, And as you heard, I'm not the regular guy. Uh, They're all out, all the regular guys. So James asked me to fill in on short notice. He actually gave me, he called me on Friday afternoon, so plenty of time, right? Um, and of course, we want to see, we want to continue to be in prayer for um, all the people who are dealing with sicknesses and emergencies, so do lift them up in your prayers. We want to see them back uh, as soon as possible. But uh, I just want to say, even with all the last-minute changes, even with the skeleton crew, um, you know what? The Holy Spirit is still here this morning, right? He can still minister. We can still worship God together. And it's a really good reminder today just to remember, you know what, it doesn't matter, like we don't have to have the right performance for God to to come and be with us, right? It doesn't matter if the right people are here or not, or if we're doing things the right way. I'm in the band, it doesn't matter if we play all the right notes or not, because I never do. Uh, (laughs) You know, but, you know, Christianity, it's about uh, coming together as believers, as a body, and worshiping God, right? It's not performance-based, so a good reminder of that today. Um, and again, for those of you who don't know me, I'll tell you a little bit about myself, and then we'll get into things. My name is John. My family and I are members at Northview. We've been coming here, I think, about four years now. Um, and the reason I'm up here today primarily is because I have a, a master's degree in biblical studies from Denver Seminary, so uh, I know a little bit about the Bible. Um, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to preach quite a bit in the past. This is something I enjoy to do, something I you know, would happily volunteer to do, and I'm doing so today. So I always enjoy the chance to get to share the knowledge that I have learned with you guys. It's kind of like a free education for you. Um, And preaching just holds a bit of a special place in my heart. I really enjoy doing it. So thank you for the opportunity. And uh, hopefully we'll live up to the the giant shoes that others uh, have have here uh, at Northview. So as we get started, all right, we're just going to be flexible today. Okay, God's still going to work and it's going to be okay. Got it? Agreed? Okay, cool. All right, so I want to start today just by talking to you about a man named Viktor Frankl. If you don't know that name, he actually wrote one of the most influential books of the 20th century. Viktor Frankl was a Jewish man. He was born and raised in Austria. And in the years leading up to World War II, he was an esteemed psychologist. He actually corresponded and worked with people like Sigmund Freud and uh, Alfred Adler, so some very high ups in 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 the discipline there. But of course, once the Nazis rose to power and they began their policy of of hatred against the Jews, you can imagine that as an educated uh, Jewish man, he would have been a target for them. And and sure enough, he was. So he ended up uh, being rounded up, he and his family, and they were sent to the concentration camps in World War II. He spent three years in different camps, and he finally found himself in 1944 at Auschwitz. So not the place that you want to be. You can... Go read more about his life. Uh, The unfortunate reality was that he was the only member of his family to survive that experience. Um, And after the war, after all that that entailed, he returned to psychology. He began uh, to immediately write about his experiences in in the prison camps. And the book that he wrote about his time in the camps was called Man's Search for Meaning. And being a trained psychologist, he noticed something unusual with the people that he encountered in the camps. And what he noticed was that he and the other prisoners were in this hopeless situation, right? There was, there was really no way out of these camps uh, short of death. And they wouldn't have had any knowledge of the Allies or how the war was going or plans to be liberated 
uh, from those camps. So as far as they knew, this was the end of the road for them. There was nothing else. There was no hope. But it was the way that people dealt with this that really interested Frankel. What he noticed was that some people became despondent. They looked at their situation, and they gave in to these feelings of helplessness and hopelessness, and they literally just gave up on life. And so what he noticed was these people often literally died, but they didn't die because they you know, went to the gas chamber or because a, a guard killed them. They would literally die in their beds due to hopelessness. That's how bleak and, and despair-ridden they were, that they would literally die from it. But then there was other people in the camps who maintained a sense of hope and faith. And they would talk about what they were going to do after the war, after this was over. And they, were, they would talk about reuniting themselves with their loved ones. And they uh, you know, held on to this hope, even if at the time it seemed like a completely ridiculous thing to do, because there was no hope. But the people who decided to hold on to hope fared much better. They refused to give up. They maintained their will to live even in the shadows of the guard towers. And so in man's search for meaning, Frankel wrestles with this question, how is it that you have the same people, or, or a different group, uh, same people, different group of people, in, a different, in the same situation, and yet they have different responses? So same people, same prison camp, different responses. Why do some people give up and, and others do not? Well, in Psalm 73, which we're going to look at today, we see a similar story played out, but this time there's a little bit of a difference. In this scenario, we find another author who is trying to process a terrible situation, but instead of looking around to other people and and noticing that, that some are hopeless while others still have hope, he's looking inside of himself and he's wrestling with the same thing. He's struggling with his two sides of, of feeling hopeless and feeling despair in the midst of the situation and also trying to have faith. And this is something I, I think that we can all relate to as, as we're slowly kind of climbing our way back out of the pandemic. I don't know about you, but in the past couple of years, I have not met anyone who has said, hey, I'm doing great. Past two years, awesome. Never been better. That just, I have not had that conversation. If you had, then that's amazing. But I have not. Um, I like to joke with people when they say that they're doing okay, that I say, oh yeah, okay, that's the new great. If you're doing doing okay, that's great, right? Because that's the baseline that we're at right now. That's the level. Okay. Um, Some of you here today might have lost a job due to the pandemic. Well, if if you're one of them, I I am too. It happened to me. Uh, Others of us, probably most of us, have had people in our lives who who have now passed away because of covid uh, I was thinking about it as I was preparing, and I, I know at least four people who, um, who passed away from COVID who otherwise would have been alive today. You know, so that's a heavy burden to bear. Uh, some of us had to figure out how to support our kids' distance learning with zero time and notifications. Wow, that was, I remember the feelings of, of exasperation and just like, I mean, there was a group of us parents, I remember sitting in my living room in a, in a circle just looking at each other like, what are we going to do? You know, tears were flowing, we were just beside ourselves. Uh, Counselors and mental health workers uh, at one point were book solid. They may still be, I haven't checked lately. Um, And I I know at one point it took months just to get on someone's calendar to go have a visit with them, even on Zoom. So I think it's fair to say that most of us, if not all of us, have struggled with feelings of hopelessness and depression and despair, at the very least anxiety, while at the same time trying to reconcile these experiences of the pandemic with the promises that the Bible and that God gives us. 
But what we'll see as we dig into Psalm 73 is that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, no matter how bad or good it might be, there's something inside of us uh, that's outside of the situation that really determines how we react to it. And that becomes the difference between hopelessness on the one hand and faith on the other. So we're going to start uh, through Psalm 73 today. We're going to take a look at the first half here. We're going to break it into chunks. And so if you would read with me Psalm 73, 1 through 15. And it begins, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But if I had said I will speak thus, I would, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Man, I feel like he's upset. Okay, so Psalm 73, a little bit of background, was written by a man named Asaph. Asaph was a worship leader in the temple under King David, and he wrote a number of different psalms. Uh, in this particular psalm, you can tell he's having a really hard time with the situation. He's trying to wrap his mind around his circumstances. We don't know the exact story behind it, but it's, it's pretty easy to see that Asaph is looking around at his world, and he's noticing that, hey, you know what? Things are not fair. In effect, he's comparing his lot in life with other people's, and he's noticing that while he's trying to follow God, he keeps getting the short end of the stick, right? Nothing is going his way. In fact, the opposite is true. He's just, you know, getting dumped on all the time. But the people that flaunt God, he looks out and sees those people. He says, well, what gives? Those people are doing just fine. They don't have trouble in life. I mean, just check out some of the things he says, like in verse 4 and verse 7. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. So Asaph is literally saying that the, the wicked, the evil, the people that don't follow God, they're, fat, they're sitting fat and happy. Like, they're just fine. There's nothing wrong with them. They scoff at God. They're prideful. They wear their pride like a necklace, right? Like you wear a necklace to kind of show off your jewelry. They wear violence like a garment. You know, it's like putting on a mariner's you know, jersey. Like, hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing. Um, they're prideful. You know, they're, they're doing great as they walk away from God and Asaph is struggling while he's trying to follow God, and he's like, God, what the heck? Do you see what's going on? Do you even care? Like, for real, what is happening? Because in Asaph's view, it, it feels like God doesn't care. In fact, if, to be honest, for Asaph, in this moment, it feels like following God is a flat-out waste of time. Why would I do this? All I get from God is hardship and trouble. And that's what he says in verses 13 and 14, right? He says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. I've, I've been 
I've, I've done the right thing uh, you know, for no reason. I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. All I get for following God is trouble. You guys ever felt like that? Honestly, you've ever felt like following God just isn't worth it? I'm here to tell you, I have. <laughs> There's times when, you know, you just, you, you try to do the right things, you're, you're uh, trying to follow God with all your heart, and it's just not working. You know, I, I can't be the only person that's felt that way. <laughs> so why is that, right? Why do we fall prey to this way of thinking? Well, I think the first half of the psalm, what we just read, keys in on something that we all do. Okay, we all love to compare. And if you're a parent, you know that this is true. And you know it starts when we're kids. You do not have to teach your child the words, that's not fair. Right? They just come out knowing it. And if you have more than one kid like I do, what they really ought to do is they just ought to hand you a referee's jersey and a whistle, right, when you get the second one. Because that's all you're going to be doing the next 15 years is breaking up arguments. <laughs> Right? Even little kids, by nature, like they look around, they see that that kid has a toy that I want. I don't have it. That's not fair. How can I get that toy, right? How can I scheme and do that? Uh, you know, I like to joke that kids are just natural lawyers. They're, you know, they're just great at it, right? You don't have to teach them. And it's kind of fun, you know, it's kind of fun to kind of poke fun at that and go, oh, yeah, kids, you know, how about them? But the problem is, right, we grow up, we don't really get rid of that, do we? Yeah, we just kind of change the focus, huh? We have a tendency to hang on to this issue. Okay, we don't maybe fight about, you know, who gets what toy or what TV show to watch, but we do ask questions like, well, how come my coworker got promoted and I didn't? Why does my neighbor's family have their life put together while my family is a mess? Why can't I be happy at my job like my coworkers are? Why can't the Mariners make the playoffs like other teams do, right? Like, <laughs> I'm really hoping this is the year, by the way. We're praying for them. Uh, so, you know, we do the same thing as the kids. We just have different focuses. And honestly, this tendency can sometimes get even worse when we're Christians because we follow God and we expect blessings, right? We read in the Bible that, oh, if you follow God, God loves you. He promises to bless you. Cool. And then you look around your own life and you say, well, wait a second. Where are these blessings that I've been promised? I don't see them. It seems like hardship and toil and trouble instead. So Asaph is looking around in his day. He's asking the same questions, right? How come these people that flaunt God, that don't care about God at all, how come they got it good and I don't? And this is one thing I want to point out real quick. Uh, this is a great example of something. And sometimes people wonder or, or say, like, okay, why, why should I read the Bible, right? This, this book was written 3,000 years ago, or at least this psalm was. Different language, different people, different country, different part of the world, what on earth could Psalm 73 have anything to do with me and my life? Well, it is true uh, that Asaph lived about 3,000 years ago. It's true that he lived in Israel and not the United States. It's true that he spoke Hebrew and not English. It's true that he didn't know what the internet was, didn't have a cell phone. All those things are true. But here's the connection point. He had the same basic questions that you and I have today. Right? The thing that remains the same is that human nature just does not change. We have the same basic questions about life and faith and God that these people thousands of years ago did. So that's one reason why reading the Bible, why going back to uh, you know, Psalm 73 and other passages, that's why it still rings true today. That's why we can still study it and learn from it and become more Christ-like because of it. 
it still speaks to our most basic needs and questions, just like it did two, three thousand years ago. All right, but getting back to Asaph. So Asaph, he's looking around at the people in, in around Jerusalem, and he's seeing this disparity, the, the wicked prosper, the, the, the good do not. And I'd like to think if he was in 2022, he'd be, uh, you know, scrolling on his Instagram feed on his phone. You know, he'd be looking at Instagram. He'd be seeing mansions and Lambos and, you know, stacks of cash. Or maybe he'd be seeing his neighbors smiling and happy in front of the Magic Castle at Disneyland. Right? And he's, and he's seeing all this on an Instagram. And then he puts his phone down and he looks around at where he's at and he sees the piles of unfolded laundry in his, in his bedroom. Or maybe I'm the only person that has those. Or all this, the sack of unpaid bills on his kitchen table, or, or you know, the, the, he thinks about the fight that he had with his wife or his kids, or whatever it is, right? And he sees this disparity, and he goes, I, what's going on? Why do those people have it together, and I don't? God, where are you? And so, of course, what Asaph is really doing is comparing himself to others. And what he's doing is he's comparing his weaknesses with other people's perceived strengths. And we have this natural tendency to do this as well. You know, we know ourselves and our sins and our failures intimately. Every time that we make a mistake or that we lose our temper or we have a bill we can't pay or whatever the case might be, we're right there experiencing it for ourselves. We've got that front row seat to our own failures. And so those failures become magnified, and sometimes they start to become our focus. And then we even can say terrible things about ourselves, like, well, if people really knew who I was or what I was really like, they wouldn't like me. Or God can't possibly love me or bless me because I'm so messed up. But we don't stop to think that everyone else is thinking the exact same thing, do we? Everyone else has issues. They just don't show them on Instagram or Facebook. We just see smiling faces and parties and successes on social media, and we think that's how their life is, and ours, by comparison, stinks. But we kind of know this is bad thinking because you would never teach your own kid to think that way, right? And yet we do it ourselves all the time. And that's the same thing with Asaph, right? He's playing this comparison game. He knows it's a bad idea. He even says so in verse 15. He says, If I had said I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's saying, look, I know this is bad thinking. I know this is bad theology. I know I wouldn't teach my own kids to think this way, and yet I'm stuck thinking this way. And again, this is why the Bible teaches us, you know, about contentment, being content with what we have. Just one example, Philippians 4, Paul says, I've learned to be content in any circumstance. So the question is, how did he do that? How can we do that? Well, If we read a little more in Psalm 73, maybe we can find out a little bit of how Asaph did that. So let's pick up again in verse 16, where Asaph continues. He says, When I thought about how to understand this, this would be everything we've just talked about, why the uh, evil people tend to have it great and good people tend to have it bad and all those kinds of issues. He says, When I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin, and how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. 
Okay, it's getting good now. So Asaph has tried to think his way out of this problem. Right? When I thought about how to understand this, he's tried to rationalize why bad people have a good, why good people have a bad. And what does he say about it? It's a wearisome task. He's worn himself out trying to figure all this out on his own. But then, and this is where the entire psalm pivots, he says these words. He says, until I went to the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. So this is the difference. This is the key. Again, this is a pivot point for the entire psalm. Asaph took his eyes off of his circumstances and he put them on God. So that's the difference between having eyes of flesh that just see things as as they are in the world and eyes of faith that sees things from God's perspective. So it turns out that who or what you look at makes a big difference in how you respond to life. And probably the best example of this is in the Gospels. If you remember the story of Jesus when he's uh, walking on the water, remember the disciples are out in the boat, uh, I think it's nighttime, and Jesus comes walking out on top of the waves. Um, and after they were convinced that it wasn't a ghost and it really was Jesus, right, what happens? So Peter says, hey, Jesus, let me come out. I'll walk with you, uh, as Peter was wont to do, things like that. And Jesus says, yeah, come on out, right? So what does Peter do? He gets out of the boat, he starts walking, he's doing great, and then what happens? Anybody remember? He looks away, he looks away from Jesus, right? He takes his eyes off Jesus. What happens? sinks like a stone, right? Immediately. So what Peter is experiencing in that story is this physical representation of the, of the spiritual reality that when you take your eyes off of God, you are going to sink. And that's the same reality that Asaph experiences when he goes into the sanctuary of God. So what happens is he reorients his eyes away from the present circumstances toward God, and by doing so, he shifts his thinking as well. And so he starts to view the success of the ungodly in terms of eternity. And he says, okay, these ungodly people, these people that don't follow God, they might have a good now. They, they might have everything on a silver platter right now. But what happens later? What's, what is their end? And he uses words like ruin and destruction and terror And he also says that the success of those who live their life far from God is like a dream when one awakes, right? It's like like the the wicked who seem so prosperous and stable, they can disappear as quickly as a dream, and they have no more real substance than than a nightmare. And it's actually pretty easy to see this play out today. How many celebrities or politicians or sports figures can you think of who have had their lives and careers come crashing down because of Uh, their sins being found out, basically. I know it's too many to count. I tried to think of an example. There's too many to even narrow it down. People that seem to have it all in one moment, you know, money, power, fame, everything that we think is important uh, in life, and they lose it in a day. Actors can all of a sudden never find work again. Athletes ruin their careers. Politicians end up in jail. And Asaph says, look, that's the end for people who live their lives scoffing at God. Their judgment, you know, it may happen in this life. They may experience those things. But even if they die with like millions in the bank and a Lamborghini in the driveway, it doesn't matter because God is going to judge them. That is going to happen. So when you turn your eyes toward God and think in light of eternity as opposed to just the present, 
all of a sudden those circumstances that you're dealing, they, they take on a very different look and feel. You start to realize that, you know what, these present circumstances I'm in, they're fleeting. Things could look drastically different tomorrow or in five years or 10 years or 20, and they will certainly look different in eternity. One of the things I've learned very well from the pandemic is that you just do not know what tomorrow will bring, right? Look at us here. On Friday morning, we didn't think five staff members would be gone. For, you just had no idea anymore. But one thing I do know and that I'm certain of is that God is going to come and judge one day. And the question is, where are you going to be when that happens? And how is that going to turn out? And that's what Asaph is, is thinking about. But I want to uh, point out one truth here. Um, and that's when you read a psalm like this or a passage like this where it's talking about the, the ruin and destruction of the wicked, um, this does not give us license to revel in that future ruin or destruction, okay? That is not what Asaph is doing here. I don't think that's uh, what the psalm is saying. Yes, he is accurately stating what will happen to the ungodly, but I don't think he's happy about it. I don't think he's gloating over it. I don't think he's looking and pointing his finger going, ha, look at you guys, jerks, look at, you know, you're going to get your come up and like that is not the the tone that he's taking. Um, I think anytime we read something like this and you're in the Bible, we need to think about Second Peter three nine, where God uh, says that He doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right, that's God's heart is to save and seek the lost, not to destroy them. But the reality is that many people will walk away from Him and, and do walk away from Him. And lots of people in our world, and our very community, live their lives with no regard for God. And that path ends in destruction. And so when we read a psalm like this, you know, we need to bear Second Peter in mind. God doesn't want this to happen to people. He doesn't want people to die in their sins, and thus neither should we. And so when you think about it in those terms, that should drive us to focus more on outreach, more on evangelism, because guess what? Right here in our own community, in Bothell and Mill Creek and Everett, there are people that need to know Jesus. They're going down the wrong path, and we need to tell them about Jesus. And so we as a church, you know, we've got to find that passion for local outreach because the stakes are too high not to. People are living and dying right now without Jesus. And so James has been talking about this, uh, you know, really ever since he got here, but especially in his last sermon series, right? We need to live and love like Jesus. So what did Jesus do? What was his concern? Finding and saving the lost. So ours should be no different. So it doesn't matter what those people out there believe, what they say, what they do, what they look like, what color their hair is. None of that matters. What matters is that they need to find Jesus. All right, so let's pick up in verse 21. We'll finish things out. So Asaph ends the psalm by saying, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish, and you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. 
So here is the payoff. Here is what Asaph learned with his encounter with God in the sanctuary. So if you want to know what the point of Psalm 73 is, like the, the main big idea, here it is. Asaph spells it out for us. He says, God's goodness is not found in my prosperity, but is found in his presence. That's the truth. And the truth is there's times in life when we very much feel and see the blessings of God in our lives, and sometimes that includes financial blessings, that's true. But there's also times where he seems distant, and it feels like he's forgotten about us, and that's also true. And there are even times where we're tempted to look out on the world and, and think that everyone else is doing great except us. And following God is just not worth the trouble. And I'm here to tell you, uh, I've been a Christian my whole life. Okay, I went to seminary. I can translate the Bible from Greek and Hebrew. Uh, I know all the big theological words. You know, I've been doing this a long time, and guess what? I still struggle with this, okay? It's just how it is. Uh, I do not think it's necessarily a maturity thing, like someday I'm going to be so godly, I'm not going to struggle with this anymore. I think this is a whole life thing, guys. I think it's just something we have to struggle through. Um, and as far as, I, that's as far as I can tell, it's a lifelong thing. And I was thinking this morning that um, all the heroes, heroes of the faith dealt with it. Moses dealt with it. If you remember, I just read this morning, uh, he, Moses goes to Pharaoh to meet him for the first time, and he thinks, oh, you know, God said the people are going to be free. I'm going to go talk to Pharaoh. It's going to work out great. That's not how it worked out. <laughs> he went to talk to Pharaoh. What did Pharaoh do? He doubled down and made the Israelites work twice as hard. And so God complained, or uh, Moses complained to God and said, God, you told me to go talk to Pharaoh and release the people, and you haven't saved them at all. That's what he says, literally. You haven't saved them at all. Gosh, you just, oh, God, come on. Jeremiah had a crisis of faith along those lines. Jeremiah, if you read his story, he preached to, uh, to Israel, and what he got for his trouble was locked in, uh, in stocks for 24 hours. That was Jeremiah 20. You know, oh, my gosh, he was not happy about that. <laughs> uh, if you remember Elijah, the story of uh, the 400 prophets of Baal, so he defeats or God through Elijah defeats the 400 prophets of Baal. What happens next? Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you. He runs away, and he goes and hides, and he says to God, I don't want to do this anymore. This game isn't fun anymore. I want to quit. So many, many people deal with this issue. So if that's, if that's you today, and you're struggling with that, I just want you to know you're in very good company, and it's okay. Uh, and many, many psalms actually deal with this exact issue as well. And so we have to wrestle with it, and that's not easy, but the great news is God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Right? His presence is always with us, whether we can feel it or not, whether we're in the mountaintop or the valley. And furthermore, he is our strength. He is our refuge. He will lead us on the right path and we will receive a reward for following him. These things will happen. They do happen. And so really, that's the truth to find confidence in. God's blessing doesn't always mean that our circumstances will be good. God's blessing does not mean we'll always have a big bank account. Okay? That idea is called the prosperity gospel. That is a false gospel. It is not true. And furthermore, it doesn't even align with reality. Like, it is just not there, okay? That is not the gospel. Rather, God's blessing comes with his presence. It comes because he gives us the strength to carry on. It comes in the peace and the joy that following Christ brings. I can tell you quite literally that I'm standing up here today because God gives me the strength to do it. That's, that's not a joke. That's not hyperbole. That's the honest to God truth. 
So it's not circumstances, it's not material blessing, but our comfort, our strength comes from the knowledge that God is with us. And that's the pivot around which this psalm turns. Asaph starts the psalm and he's wondering where God is because he has the wrong idea about what God's blessing looks like. But then he meets God in the sanctuary and he realizes that the true blessing is that God is with him and with his people. So as we've looked at this journey that that Asaph went on from hopelessness to faith, from looking at his circumstances from his own perspective to an eternal perspective, we've seen that God's goodness is not found in our prosperity, but in his presence. But the question is, how do we adopt this perspective ourselves? What do we do to experience the same mind shift set that, uh, uh, mindset shift as Asaph? Well, first and foremost, there's something we have to realize, okay? You can only find hope in God's presence if you have God's presence in your life. If it's not there, you can't find hope in it, right? Okay, how do you do that? Well, if you want God's presence and thus his blessing, you need to have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you. Okay, how do you do that? Well, if you want the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, then you need to submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ, right? It starts with Christ, it ends with Christ. This whole, everything I've said, everything I'm going to say has to have Christ in the center of it, okay? This is not a thing that you can just work yourself out of. You cannot dig yourself out of this hole. Asaph tried that, right? He said, I tried to figure it out on my own, and it was a wearisome task. All he did was, was get worn out thinking about this. It's about changing the object of your faith. It's about aligning yourself to the reality that Jesus is Lord and submitting to that reality. So I would urge you, if you've never come to terms with who Jesus is, why not today? Do you need God's presence in your life? Do you feel that being able to weather So if you don't know Jesus, uh, I encourage you, um, come talk to me afterwards. Talk to a Christian friend that you trust. Uh, if you're online, you know, send, a, send a, uh, an email to the church. Do something. Reach out to someone. Find that love and acceptance in Jesus. Because without him, the rest of this is like a house of cards. It's not going to work. But second, this psalm really shows the difference between complaining about your problems and bringing your problems to God. Okay, it's really easy to complain. When we complain, we look at our circumstances, we grumble, we compare, uh, we engage in negative self-talk, we do all of these harmful things. But when we bring our problems to God, that's about taking a look at our circumstances and then with the help of the Spirit, choosing to go to the foot of the cross and saying, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need you to help me. I need your strength to deal with these things. And I want to point out something here uh, about this in particular. When you go to God with your problems, I want you to hear this. God can handle your feelings, okay? God gave you your feelings. Feelings are good. It is okay to have feelings. You don't have to stuff your feelings down inside of you and come to God with a fake smile on your face. You don't have to pull yourself together to come talk to God. In fact, I think you'd probably prefer it if you didn't. Just come, right? It's okay not to be okay. And the truth is that sometimes life sucks, okay? It just does. And sometimes the appropriate natural response to that is to feel bad. That is okay. And God understands that, okay? The Psalms are filled with people crying out to God with great emotion, wondering where he is, crying out. 
And those are the, song, those are the examples of prayer that, that God gave us. So it's okay. Um, so I would encourage you, when you bring your problems to God, which I hope you choose to do, that's the whole mess, okay? The tears, the frustration, the anger. He is big enough to handle it. And he loves you anyway. And so this is what we learn from the example of Asaph in Psalm 73. So when we go through rough times, when, when, seem, when things don't seem to be working for us and it looks like everyone else has their stuff together except me, we can choose to bring that to God. We can choose to look at him instead of focusing on our own issues. And when we let, uh, we can choose to let God handle those issues because guess what? They're too big for us, but they're easy for him. And so when we do that, that's where we can find joy and hope and peace, even in the midst of the worst times, because again, the real blessing that God gives us is his presence and his love and his strength. Would you pray with me? Father God, we so often find ourselves in Asaph's shoes. We look around, we see, we see all these people around us who don't heed you at all, and yet they seem to have everything handed to them on a silver platter. And yet we bear hardships and feel like you're distant. But God, we know that's poor thinking, uh, and we need you to meet us here today, God, in your sanctuary. We need you to reorient our eyes to you. We need you to set our hearts and our thinking straight, God. Remind us today, Lord, that we are indeed blessed because you are with us. So God, we come to you, or we ask you to come, by, uh, be the strength of our heart, be our portion. And finally, God, we, we thank you that you are a refuge, and we thank you that it is indeed good to be near you. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.